You're listening to devpath.fm, the podcast about career development for software engineers. Join the conversation at www.devpath.fm or on Twitter at devpathfm. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Jacob Harrington, and I'm here with Nick Janitakis. Nick is a developer. Um, He works freelance, and he does education, building content around DevOps and Docker. Nick, do you want to say hi and talk a little bit about your day job? Sure. Yeah, hi. I'm Nick Janitakis, and uh, my day job for the last about 20 years or so has been a freelance developer. And I got started doing that a little bit after high school. I was basically self-taught. But day-to-day, what I do typically is uh, I just focus on creating content because other than doing freelance work, I also create video courses, write blog posts, and things like that. So what part of that do you think is the most exciting or enjoyable? Mm, I I really enjoy creating the content because um, I guess you can say why I got into development was due to just being... Um, like I, I really like learning about things in detail. So when I'm writing content or, you know, about, about Docker or some programming language or something like that, you know, it's really fun for me to go really deep into Google and, and research these things as I go. Hmm. So you mentioned uh, getting started at a really young age, uh, or at least young for a lot of developers. What was that like and what pushed you towards that? Um, I, I don't know if it's young because I'm pretty old now, late 30s. And uh, we didn't even have a computer in my house until I was about 16 or 17. So that's really when I got started, about 17 years old. But nowadays, people get started much, much younger. Sure, but a lot of people don't have the confidence to start writing code for other people or or for money until they're in their early, mid, or even late 20s, depending on how they get started. So saying that you kind of got started freelancing right after high school, that means that you probably either were doing a lot of building the airplane in the air, or you were just confident out of the gate. Um, I was definitely the opposite of confident, but luckily for me, I guess I was able to get a lot of free experience. So back in high school, I used to play a lot of competitive Quake. It's a like a first person oh, yeah. shooter game. And <clears throat> back then, uh, a friend and I, we started our own little Quake site like a competitive gaming ladder where teams can sign up and play against each other. So it was almost like a, like a software as a service type of site. And I got a lot of experience just coding and designing, working with HTML and all that fun stuff back then. And uh, a lot of people knew me from that. So in the gaming community, people would approach me and be like, hey, Nick, can you make uh, like a Quake clan site for us? So I got a lot of a free, free experience making sites for them. Hmm. And that kind of built up my confidence as I went because I was able to just, you know, get my hands dirty and really work with things, but not be so much pressured because most of it was free work. But eventually, you know, some people did want to hire me to do paid work for them. And uh, it kind of just felt natural only because I had so much experience beforehand of just doing it for free. Yeah. What was that experience the first time or the, the beginning of taking money for writing code? What was that like? Uh, that was like, how in the world are people willing to pay me to do stuff that I like? <laughs> like imposter syndrome was very, very, very high. And even now, like 
you know, 20 years later, I still get, you know, it's still weird to be, to understand that people want to hire me to do stuff. I, I guess yeah. that's just the way I am. When you talk about imposter syndrome then and now, how has that affected you and how is it different now than it was? Well, I guess now a little bit older, a little bit more experienced. Like, I feel like the more experience you get, it's kind of weird. It's like when you're younger, it's almost like the imposter syndrome might even be a little bit less because you kind of don't even know what you don't know type of thing. Mm. But like as I gain more experience and, and learn things in a little bit more detail, I, I realize like at a personal level how little I actually know. So then it's like you kind of think like how in the world, like how does that stuff even work? Like you're, you're baffled that things actually work. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to just getting over something like that, it's really comes down to almost anything. Like the more you do it and uh, you just get more experience and you take baby steps of just building your confidence. Because once you do something like 15 times and it's successful, then it's like, well, not, you don't even need to do it 15 times. But, you know, as you do it more and more and more and more, you, you get a lot of positive feedback and you just have to think about that in your head. Like, okay, I did this 10 times before and it worked out all 10 times, like the 11th time is going to be good as well. One of the big secrets to dealing with imposter syndrome or dealing with really just being good in this industry is, you know, repetition and and hours spent on the job. The more you do it, the more comfortable you are and the less you doubt yourself. And like you said, you get that kind of, you know, realizing how much you actually don't know, but you start to find out that maybe that's okay and maybe everyone else feels the same way. Yeah, I think that's a big thing with freelancing too. It's like you don't need to know everything before you take on a new job. So on almost every job that I take, uh, I'm I'm learning as I go. Like you're never going to know all the answers up front. It's hard to put like real numbers on it, but you know you should always be thinking like, okay, on this job, like twenty percent of it is pretty much unknown to me. Like it should, you know it should be in the vicinity of what you know, but don't expect to know it beforehand. Like I still remember. How long ago was this? Like six or seven years ago, someone approached me to make a pretty big Rails application for them. And that was actually my first freelance gig uh, to do a Rails project. And I mean, it was like a monstrous project. Uh, It had like Stripe to accept payments and there was like a million background jobs. Like it was a complex app, but Mm -hmm. and I've never worked uh, with Rails and using Stripe before that, but I still took it on and it worked out in the end. I think you just need some confidence just to to take it on and just do it like, like no safety net, like somehow you'll power through it if you have some experience. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Plus nowadays it's a little bit easier because if you really like really, really get stuck on something, there's way more things that you can search for and you can even go and and kind of hire someone to help you out if you get really, really stuck. When was your first experience mentoring others? Well, as a freelance developer, you kind of have that as part of your job really early on. Like people are coming to you usually just for help. Like I have this problem. Can you help me solve it? And it might be anything from, you know, a specific programming problem to just weird little things. Like some of the freelance work I do isn't even so much programming. It's more like analyzing their business and then figuring out like, you know, how can we improve this workflow to make things more efficient or you know, uncovering things that aren't maybe obvious to the business owner until they hear that that's something they can do. Like weird things like, um, you know, let me throw an example out. Like for a hairdresser, like scheduling appointments could be something that's 
pretty automated, but a business owner who's non-technical might not even think to use like, um, you know, some custom software or, you know, some schedule application for that. Mm-hmm. So how much of your work do you think ends up being uh, mentoring or just informing? Well, when it comes to just informing, um, I don't really go out there and, and do talks and instruct people like in front of a classroom. So all of my mentoring, I guess, would be just usually one-on-one freelancing work or, you know, maybe a small team. And then like for group mentoring, it, it's really just comes down to people who take my pre-recorded courses. But in terms of like a split of like how much time do I dedicate to doing that versus like creating video courses or whatever, uh, I try to keep it a pretty even mix. So I don't have like a, like a set schedule where from, you know, 8 a.m. to noon, I'm doing freelance work and then it's like content creation afterwards. It's more I kind of just wing it and things go how they go. But I do try to keep both sides pretty active because it ends up working out pretty nicely in terms of getting work. Because I think a lot of people don't like a lot of developers, and this was me years ago for sure, like we hate or I hated going out there and really try to find work, you know, like becoming the salesman, like, hey, please hire me to do this job. I do not like looking for work. There are definitely exceptions, um, but I think it's outside of kind of the archetype of a developer to be really comfortable in front of others or really comfortable in that kind of sales marketing role. And that actually leads me kind of to the question, what drove you to step into this content creation sphere where you do have to market yourself? Well, that's where it gets kind of funny. So I, I really got into the content creation for two reasons. So once I did a lot of you know freelance work, did many, many, many jobs, um, a lot of people were like, hey, you know, the way you explained that was pretty good. Like, have you ever thought about doing video courses or training and things like that? Or, you know, they offered to fly me out and, and train their team like personally, things like that. And uh, I started thinking about that and I'm like, well, when I Google a question, you know, like how to do this or that, usually I find a personal blog post like written by somebody else. And what's really interesting about that is uh, once you start building an audience based on like people finding your blog posts, then when it comes to them wanting to, to hire you or do work, like you don't even have to sell anymore at all. Like your content does the selling. So I'm not even going out there finding freelance work anymore. By the time that people want to hire me to do work, they're just emailing me and they're like, yo, Nick, can you help us out? You know, <laughs> like, like the sale is already made. Yeah. So if you are one of those developers who, you know, really hates the idea of selling and you kind of just want to go heads down and write code. I mean, if you introduced, you know, blog posts or maybe you start a YouTube channel, like whatever works for you best, then understand that that could be a very good opportunity to get inbound leads as a freelancer. Do you think there is a specific characteristic that you have that makes you good at uh, teaching in that format? Um, well, I guess my biggest weakness is, is actually things like this, where we're just winging in conversation. So I think I'm able to explain things a lot better when I write it down first. So even for my video courses, what I typically do is, you know, I will plan the crap out of that course before I even hit the record button on the video, like almost to the point where I'm writing a blog post but like 280,000 words worth of blog posts. Hmm. And once it's fully, fully planned out, like 
everything is flowing the way I want it. And I'm not saying like every 10 seconds, like I probably am <laughs> doing here, <laughs> you know, then I record it and I use those notes as a very strong guide. Like I don't read it like a script, but just being able to write things out first really helps me focus on what I want to say. So do you think that translates to your ability to go in depth on a subject? I think so. Yeah. And also even since a, a very early age, like I've always been very determined to do something like I will not give up until I figure out the answer. So like I have no problem sitting there, you know, if it takes 17 hours straight to get to the bottom of some question that I have, then I will go full steam ahead until I figure it out. And what I've noticed with a lot of developers, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like when you get stuck, your instinct is to almost panic and be like, well, what do I do? Or you just give up. But you have to be really persistent as a developer, I feel. And never be afraid to read documentation because I find that that helps me out about 90% of the time. Like if I have a question about a certain, I don't know, like Linux tool or whatever, like the first thing I do is go straight to the man pages. And then if I can't figure that out, then I start looking on Google. Yeah, I feel like that's something especially junior developers struggle with. They encounter one of those glaring error messages and then they freeze or they go immediately and ask a more senior person for help. And a lot of the time you can just read the error message. Uh, but when you can't, you could go read, you know, a number of articles or the actual documentation for whatever tool you're using and probably find that solution. Yeah. It's almost like a level of abstraction. It's like the code is the absolute lowest level and you probably don't want to go there, but then it's like the documentation from the people who wrote the code is the next step. And then other people write blog posts based on that documentation. And then other people make videos based on those blog posts. And before you know it, you know, it's like that game of telephone where you're like six <laughs> levels out. Like when I'm developing a new project or trying to learn something new, like right now, my latest thing is I'm trying to take on Elixir and, and build like a little web application with Phoenix, which is Elixir's web framework. But, you know, that's all pretty new to me. And um, when it comes to learning a language and a framework like that, that's new. I kind of just take it, you know, almost like a problem solution mindset. Like I'm not looking to read documentation or, you know, read an 800 page book on how to learn Elixir from the ground up. I kind of just do like problem based development where it's like, well, I want to make a new application with Phoenix. What's my first step? Okay, I need to install Elixir and then I need to generate a Phoenix app. Like, you know, maybe the next step would be how do I add like a custom, you know, homepage template? Like I'll, I'll break it down like that and kind of just treat it towards like, what's my exact problem right now? And then Google or search or find the solution and implement it and then move on to the next like real problem that I have instead of trying to just read, you know, 600 pages on like how enums work in Elixir. Yeah, it's, it's a cliche, but you know, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? The same thing applies to any large task like I'm going to learn a new framework or a new language. You need to break that in down into digestible pieces. You can't expect to swallow, you know, the entire language and understand it in a 24 hour period. Yeah, definitely takes time. Like I remember when I learned Rails um, a couple of years ago, at that point, it, it wasn't the first web framework that I've used. So you kind of have an edge once you've learned at least one or two before that. But for me, I mean, it was like three months of nonstop watching Railscasts, which is like a screencast uh, service for Rails that was really popular a number of years ago. But it was also building my own application at the same exact time. So I was spending maybe 30% of my time watching those screencasts. 
because I had specific problems, like how do I do pagination? And then I would watch the screencast and then implement it in my app like right after. So I, I think for learning, like doing is the most important thing. But of course, you know, you don't know how to do it right away. So you research it as you go. Yeah. And that's kind of a catch 22 I found is realizing that it's okay to do it wrong. Um, you're going to have to do it wrong a few times before you figure out how to do it right. Oh yeah. That's, that is a really, really, really good point. Like, I love that. That's exactly how I think too. So like writing bad code or it's not even bad code. It's like, well, this is the initial code, like getting it to work is the most important. And then once you work with the language more and you start playing around, you start realizing like, Hey, that code I wrote three months ago, it's a little bit funky. Maybe you can do it better. And like, that's the point where you step in and refactor your code because you learn stuff along the way. Yeah. And it's important to keep in mind that your code is going to be living and it's going to be iterative and that it's never going to be finished. So you don't have to necessarily be happy with where it's at. You just need to understand it as you go. Like you said, you'll go back and you'll clean it up and you'll improve it. Yeah, that's definitely how I approach it too. Like you're not wasting time by writing, you know, your initial code. If anything, that's the best time spent because that's when you're really learning. Yeah, it seems that you kind of have expertise on this whole area of learning, you know, being someone who teaches, but also being someone who actively learns as part of your job. Do you think now that you are, you, you've touched on this a little, but do you think now that you are, more of a kind of a veteran of the industry that you spend more or less time learning day to day. I'm still, I'm still learning a lot. Um, it's hard to put an exact number on it, but I don't know. Like if I don't understand something in detail, like I will research that and learn that it's, it's like a never ending process of learning, but I don't just learn, 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 and, and don't do anything with that information. Um, you know, if I'm learning, it's for a purpose of either building something or writing about it. So the output is as important as the input. And I feel like when it comes to the output, uh, like writing a blog post about a subject that I just researched or, you know, I, I was using uh, on some project I was working on or whatever, like that really helps you learn in the end just by explaining it. Because writing like a really good blog post or any type of blog post, like it really forces you to break the problem down and come up with a clear explanation of how something works. So I want to ask you, because I think you've, set yourself up as an industry expert on a set of topics. What is your advice to someone who wants to do that for themselves, but isn't quite at that expert level? Uh, you're never going to really be an expert. Like I still don't consider myself an expert at all. I mean, how do you measure what an expert is? It's like if someone hires you to do the work or you have something in mind that you want to build and you can do that and produce results, then we're on an even page here. Like we're both able to do that. So I think it's a very results oriented type of thing to determine, you know, what, what someone's skill level is at. Yeah. And that seems like imposter syndrome plays into that. Maybe for people who are considering creating content or considering kind of trying to develop expertise in something and using content to either set themselves up as an authority or to solidify their knowledge. There's a fear that, producing that content is going to be detrimental or not valuable um, because they aren't an expert yet. In your experience, do you think that creating that content leads to becoming an expert or do you think there's kind of a threshold you need to meet before you start making content? Well, 
Now, hopefully this doesn't sound too like egotistical or self-centered, but like when I first started my blog, I was writing that for me. It, I was not writing that for anybody. And uh, if you take it from that approach, then it's like you have nothing to lose. So I just feel like for me personally, like writing things out helps me really materialize what I'm learning. But it's kind of funny when you write a blog post and, you know, you put it up on, you know, the web somewhere and then like six months down the line, you're Google for something and you find your own site. Yeah, I think I've actually heard that from a handful of people. It really happens. I think it's the the scratch your own itch mentality. If you have a problem or you're struggling with something and then you solve that problem, someone else is going to also encounter that problem. Sure. And also think about, you know, how a search really happens. Like for me, if I go to Google and I do a search for whatever and I find someone's blog post on that topic, you know, all I care about is, you know, how did you solve the problem? Like, I don't really care if you've been a developer for three weeks or 30 years. Like, it's all the same to me if you can help me out. Yeah, that's very true. I think too many people look at um, individuals like you or like you mentioned Wes Boss or someone else who creates content and, you know, teaches and they see those individuals as I, I call them like heroes or maybe just they've they've put them on a pedestal. And in reality, those people, at least at one point, were just like everyone else um, and in some ways probably still are. And they're not, like you said, they're not necessarily experts. They're just someone who created a resource and it's helpful. And it doesn't matter if that person was an expert when they created the resource or not. What matters is that they're helping others by sharing their own struggles. Yeah. And it's pretty cool too. Like once you start producing those articles over time or whatever, um, you just become better at what you do and that become, you know, that'll give you a little bit more confidence and it'll make you feel like you're more of an expert if that's, you know, what you need to get yourself going. Because you can look back and after a year of blogging and be like, wow, like I produced one article a week, 52 articles and hey, that that's a pretty big accomplishment. Got to look back at the first video course I ever made and like I can't even watch more than like eight seconds of one of the videos without cringing out. <laughs> like I have to like almost throw my computer out the window. Like it's that bad. But at the same time, like thousands of people have consumed that course and no one, not even, not even one person really complained that, oh, hey, the production value was garbage. Like I, I think just, I don't know, developers tend to be more critical of themselves, I guess. And you just have to accept that you will get better with experience. A lot of people probably look at you and say, oh, Nick is you know, a heroic developer. He has created this content that thousands of people consume and he's known as an expert. So he's special or he's perfect or he's lucky or whatever. To refute that, do you want to share something that you consider yourself to be bad at? Uh, yeah, like public speaking, things like that. I am really bad at. Um, I also think some problems I have comes to, I, I guess this is probably pretty common with a lot of developers, like perfectionism can get in the way of progress for me big time. Like I, that's something I always need to keep in check. Like just spending hours upon hours upon hours, rewatching stuff, editing stuff, rewatching stuff like a thousand times in a row just to get it perfect when, you know, it probably, you know, it probably was good like five hours ago. And also, I can get pretty stuck when it comes to procrastination tactics. So 
I guess when it comes to like freelance work, like if someone's paying me to do the work, I have no problems. Like I can work on that forever until it's done. Like that's just the way my brain works. But when it comes to creating like a blog post or working on the next course or, you know, things that are, that are kind of like self-propelled, it's very easy for me to just start the day waking up thinking like, yeah, I'm going to write 5,000 words towards the course and it's going to be epic. But then I just end up on YouTube for like six hours. <laughs> How do you deal with that? Uh, I usually just write things down like physically on paper. Like when I start finding myself doing stupid stuff, like constantly checking Hacker News or Reddit or whatever, which is not stupid, but you know, if you're doing that for the five hours every day, that's a problem. But if I catch myself doing that, like I'll just stop what I'm doing and just write down like exactly what I'm doing. Like I went to Reddit and I spent, you know, 45 minutes on there. Like why? But like for, for me, when I see it written down on paper, I can see that I'm, I'm making a mistake. And also just thinking about the future. Like, what do you want your life to look like, you know, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now? And that usually puts me on track because a year from now, I don't want to be in the same spot doing what I'm doing now. Like, I love what I do and I want to continue making courses, continue creating content. But, you know, I also want to improve myself over time. Yeah, I think that's really wise. And that's a pretty clever strategy for dealing with time wasting, <laughs> making yourself acknowledge that you're wasting time. Yeah, if you take it one step further and actually like write down what you're doing like every 15 minutes, and then you look at the piece of paper at the end of the day and, and you just see nothing but, you know, Hacker News, Reddit, YouTube, then you just got to shake your head and think like, what the hell am I doing? Like just seeing it on paper helps. Nick, before we uh, finish up, I want to give you an opportunity to plug yourself. So where should someone go if they want to learn more about you? Uh, well, my main website is nickgenitakis.com. I'm not going to bother spelling it. Hopefully it's in some type of show notes. <laughs> or you can just Google for Nick Genetakis, and you'll probably find all sorts of stuff. But yeah, my main website has uh, all of my blog posts there, about 200. And there's a number of courses that you can take a look at if you're interested as well. Cool. Well, Nick, I really appreciate you sharing your expertise, the things that you've struggled with, and as well as the things that you've been successful at. Sharing that kind of stuff is really good for the community. And it's really good for people who are trying to level up and, you know, someday have a career that looks a lot like yours. Yeah. Thanks a lot for having me. It was definitely, uh, it was a good chat. Thanks for listening to devpath.fm. Want to ask a question? Send an email to jacob at devpath.fm.